Well, let's pray together this morning. Paul said at the end of 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Thanks be to God for His indescribable gift. The gift of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who came to redeem His people and to rescue us from our sins. He is the one that has purchased us, the one who has grace, who has appeared, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the one in whom there is redemption, the forgiveness of sins, the one who has removed and cast our sins far away from us. God, He who took sin on Himself so we might receive righteousness for ourselves, the one who has put to death in the flesh but made alive in the Spirit, the one who was crushed for our iniquities, the one who was pierced through for our transgressions, the one who made us alive in Christ, Lord, the one who has been gracious to us in so many ways, countless, undescribable, as Paul says, thanks be to you for your indescribable gift. And that, Lord, is how we start my message this morning, God, is really thanking you for Christ. And uh, I would pray that as we think about this Christmas season and as we think about um, celebrating this Tuesday, uh, the birth of our Lord, I pray that you would strike us with how, how tremendous it is that we have such a Savior uh, who has redeemed us from our sins and purified us from all wickedness. We thank you that it's in your kindness that you brought mercy to us by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, not by works that we've done in righteousness, but according to your mercy. God, may you, this morning, through my words, stir our hearts afresh to realize the the gift that we have in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so we do pray that even now it would be an act of worship as we hear your word. Be with me. Give me strength and power and insight and wisdom and clarity. Uh, speak forth your word. Pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this Christmas season, as we uh, reflect upon Christ and the birth in, in Bethlehem, we've been considering the book of Hebrews. Um, and it is very appropriate for us because the book of Hebrews has everything to do with Christ. It's uh, a book that's really centered about him, speaks about how more excellent Christ is than so many things. He's better than angels, better than Moses, better than Aaron. His sacrifice is better than the Old Testament sacrifices. Last week, we surveyed the first two chapters of the book of Hebrews and discovered different reasons. I just looked at different verses there and tried to pull out different reasons of why it is that Christ came. And we saw last week that Christ came to communicate to us. It says there, the beginning of Hebrews, that God, in many portions, in many ways, spoke to the fathers and the prophets. Lots of different prophets, lots of different ways. But in the last days, He has spoken to us in His Son, communicated to us through Christ. Also, Christ tasted death for us. He became the forerunner for us, tasting death so that we might get on the other side of death as well through the resurrection of Christ. Also, we found out that He came into the flesh to be merciful to us. He could be a high priest who could sympathize with our every weakness. And this week... I want to do the same thing in Hebrews. Just pull out uh, our attention, though, this week. We're going to focus on chapters 9 and 10. And we're going to do the same thing. I've looked through these chapters and scoured them and found several verses in here that speak about the purpose of the Incarnation, the reason why it is that Jesus became flesh, 
I simply want to draw those out to you this Christmas season, reflect upon Christ. And really my, my aim this morning is to exalt Jesus and that you might see of how glorious and wondrous He is. My first point this morning comes from Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12. Jesus came into the flesh to obtain eternal redemption. To obtain eternal redemption. The, the, the point comes in the very last phrase there in verse chapter 9, verse 12. It says, having obtained eternal redemption. In the previous verse, you can see that this is a direct result of the incarnation. If you look in Hebrews 9, verse 11, it says, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come. His appearance is a reference to his appearance on earth that began in a stable at Bethlehem and culminated in a cross at Calvary. As a result of his suffering, he has, as verse 12b says, obtained eternal redemption. Now before we get into those phrases and those words and unpack them, we really need to see and discover how exactly it is that Jesus has obtained an eternal redemption and and the whole impact of that word, that phrase. In order to get there, really, we need to start back in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 1, because the whole flow of thought kind of begins to climax there as we see Christ. So let's look at chapter 9, verse 1. I'm just going to read through this and explain quickly what's happening before we get to verse 11. It says, Now even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship in the earthly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one, in which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. Behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle which is called the Holy of Holies, having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold having a golden jar of incense holding the manna and Aaron's rod that budded in the tables of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These very words are a a brief summary of the design of the temple. In five verses, the writer of the Hebrews summarizes everything that took six chapters of Exodus to describe in detail. We see two rooms. We see the holy place and the holy of holies. The holy place was the outer tabernacle. The holy of holies was the inner tabernacle. This is a place where God dwelt. The holy of holies. In order to get to the holy of holies, you need to go through the holy place to get there. You might think of it like a a master bathroom attached to a master bedroom. In order to get to the bathroom, you need to go through the bedroom to get there. And it was the same arrangement here in the tabernacle. And this wasn't very large. The Holy of Holies was 15 feet square. And the holy place was 15 feet by 45 feet. So less than a 1,000 square feet. Here was the hub of worship for millions of Jews across the world at that time in the Middle East. And now each of these rooms were filled with various vessels for ministry. These vessels were used for the priests to perform the divine worship. Some was in the outer tabernacle. And some was in the inner tabernacle. And because of our constraints of time, we cannot now speak of these things in detail. But the significance comes in verses 6 and 7. It's the significance of the point of the writer and our significance today as well. It says, Now when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle performing the divine worship. But into the second, only the high priest enters once a year. 
and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and also for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. Many priests entered the tabernacle daily, performing their, their daily rituals and worships. Every day the priests needed to bring clear oil and beaten olives to make the lamp in the room burn continually, every morning and every night at least, monitoring the oil there to make sure that that lamp burns continually. Once a week, on the Sabbath day, the priests would take 12 loaves of bread, which they would bake for themselves, and put them upon the table, two rows of six loaves each, and they'd pour over this frankincense, or sprinkle on it, frankincense on the bread, according to the commandment and law. And these priests never missed a day in fulfilling these two functions there in the holy place. The door was always open. Priests coming in and out, visiting that. didn't matter what sort of priest you were, in and out. But into the second, into the Holy of Holies, where God's presence dwelt, it was an entirely different story. Whereas many priests went in and out of the holy place, only one priest went into the Holy of Holies. It was the high priest, the most privileged of all of them. And he entered only once a year on Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement, seventh month, tenth day. And he would bring blood. And he would first offer a sacrifice for his own sins. And he would offer this sacrifice for the sins of the people and plead that God would be merciful and atone for the sins that past year. And when he left the room, it would be another 365 days until another priest would be permitted to enter that room. You can imagine the dust that would build up. Because nobody got there. Untouched by human hands for another 365 days. And that's the way God prescribed worship in the Old Covenant. You say, why did He do it this way? Well, verses 8 through 10 tell us why. The Holy Spirit is signifying this. The whole temple arrangement has been designed by the Holy Spirit to teach us this. That the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience, since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. It's really interesting here that God had a purpose in establishing the Old Covenant worship this way, in which the, the priest would continually enter the outer place, but into the inner place only once a year. And it was an object lesson, a giant symbol to teach us that we can't get into the Holy of Holies as long as the outer tabernacle is still standing. And as the worshipers came to worship in the temple, they were to think, I can't get in to the Holy of Holies. There must be something missing. There must be something else. And they were even to understand that all the religious activities which they were engaged on was less than perfect. In fact, look what it says there in verse 9. Both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. They, they relate only to things external. Seemingly, they were never able to get to the heart of the matter in a full way. As verse 9 indicates, the worshiper would probably leave with some nagging feeling, perhaps, of how it just wasn't enough. But this all changed on Christmas with the appearance of Christ. Now we have a perfect sacrifice which has been given to us Eternal redemption, right? Now with that context, let's hear, hear, hit here verse 11. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, He entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through His own blood. He 
entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Now, there are several difficulties here in, in verse 11. First of all, comes um, um, comes in the tense of this verb. Is it a present tense or, or past tense? When Christ appeared, the NAS says, as a high priest of the good things to come. Some of your versions might say of the things that have come. So there's a, there's a question here about whether it's the good things to come in the future, as some manuscripts say, or whether it's the things that Christ brought about in coming in the flesh. It's a manuscript error. Some manuscripts say one, some manuscripts say the other. It's difficult to know exactly which the writer of Hebrews wrote. Another difficulty is understanding what's meant by this greater and more perfect tabernacle. Because Christ is entering this tabernacle, but it's not the earthly one. It's this greater one. And there's some question about what exactly that is. In chapter 8, verse 3, we know that the, the tabernacle on earth was a copy of the, the heavenly one. But we don't know much about this heavenly tabernacle that Christ entered. And so verse 11 has difficulties in the details. But don't be worried because the big picture of this verse is clear. Because with the coming of Christ, there will be good things to come. The glories of heaven are unsurpassed to those who believe. And with the coming of Christ, good things have come. The blessings upon the godly life are abundant. So it really doesn't matter much whether it's present or future. Christ has brought in good things and will bring in good things. They're true because His sacrifice was a better sacrifice than the Old Testament sacrifices. See, the blood of Christ wasn't taken by a priest and offered someplace in the Holy of Holies according to the Old Covenant. Rather, the blood of Christ entered a greater and more perfect tabernacle. We don't know exactly what this is, but several times throughout the book of Hebrews, we see Christ going someplace and going to sit down at the right hand of the Majesty on high where the true presence of God is. In fact, if I could think about this Holy of Holies, the most holy place on earth, um, where's the most holy place in heaven? It's the throne room of God where the angels and the seraphim circle the throne and say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And just as God's presence dwelt in the holy of holies like He did no place else, right? Perhaps there's this place in heaven where God dwells in His most concentrated place or like He dwells no other place in heaven. That's probably where Christ has gone. It's probably the true tabernacle where Christ has entered. In fact, even through Hebrews, think about these verses. Hebrews 1.13 To which of the angels did he ever say, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? It was Christ who came at the right hand of God. For chapter 8, verse 1, the main point what's been said is this. We have a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the majesty in the heavens. Or chapter 10, verse 12, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, he sat down at the right hand of God. This is probably the, the heavenly holy of holies what he's talking about here. And when Jesus sat down at the right hand of God, his work was finished because he obtained eternal redemption. And, and now we get to the crux of my, my first point. Jesus came into the flesh to obtain eternal redemption. And, and really, the redemption that Christ has provided through his sacrifice is so different than what the Old Testament sacrifices provided. As you think about it, really, it can blow your mind. That's what I want to try to do. Blow your mind as to what this eternal redemption is. When we think of redemption, we often think about coupons, which we redeem at, at a store. That's what redemption means. It means purchasing. And I brought here a couple coupons with me today. Here's, here's one that says, from Kohl's. 
expect great things from Kohl's. Pick a day and save an extra 15% on everything. It's a 15% coupon. And here on the back, it says, um, when you shop on this one day, you get 15% off of all the in-store sales and everything on all sale, regular clearance price merchandise and from valid from November 14th, December 15th. And when you do this, the associate's supposed to write his or her initials there and the date, it says even here, redeemed. And uh, on December 14th, 2007, my wife got 15% off at Colts. That's redemption. But the redemption of Christ is different than this coupon. I mean, first of all, the redemption of Christ isn't a discount. It's not like we put forth 85% effort and then God kicks in an extra 15%. Right? He doesn't do that. It's not like we put in 15% and He kicks in another 85 The redemption of God is total and complete. When Christ redeems us, He pays 100% of the cost required. So this redemption coupon just kind of lacks a little bit. So I got another one. I have... Uh, a $10 Kohl's holiday cash card. In fact, I got two of them. This is like 20 bucks right here in my hand. And um, it's equivalent to a $20 bill. I can hand to the, the Kohl's attendant there. Or not, not I. I've been in Kohl's like twice ever. But, but you hand it to the, redemption, to the, the uh, attendant there and it's like a $20 bill. There's, there's one problem with these things though. There is an expiration date on them. It says redeem. There it is, that word again. Redeem your Kohl's cash coupon in store December 9th to December 20th, 2007. So do the math. You know what? These things have expired. They're like no good. The only thing they're good for now is a sermon illustration. Is all is all they're good for. They're expired. They're no longer effective, completely worthless. But the redemption of Christ is different than such a coupon. Think about this. Eternal redemption. The, the, the redemption that Christ provides never has an expiration date. It never expires. If you're leaving, living and breathing, His redemption is available to you. Well, in this way, Christ is more like a gift card. Here's another one I got from Don Pablo. This was a Christmas present to us from someone in the congregation, and we're very much appreciative for it. Uh, my wife and I are looking forward to spending this $25 out on a dinner sometime with ourselves. And on the back, even it says um, it's redeemable at, um, let's see, where does it say? It says also redeemable at Hops Grill and Brewery, I guess. Or I've never, Do we have one of those in Rockford? Maybe someplace. But it's redeemable. It even says the same thing. This is a gift card that is redeemable. It's equivalent to $25 cold, hard cash and has no expiration. In fact, even on the, on the back is a guarantee. Card will be replaced at the value of the card at the time it is reported lost or stolen. You lose this and it can come back. If you remember the, the number right there on the back, they can look it up, see how much is in your account. And there it is. This is no expiration date. It's going to be there Except even that has limitations to it. First of all, it's only $25. If I decide to take my family out, it's not going not gonna to handle it. The redemption of Christ will cover the entire meal completely. I mean, don't get me wrong. We, we appreciate the $25, all right? 
That just shows the limitations. And, and, and again, also, there is another limitation on this in that once the card has been used, Don Pablos keeps the card. And we get one meal from this card. That's all we get. The redemption of Christ is different. Not only does it never expire, it never loses its value. When you use it, when you need redeeming power of Christ, it's there. In this way, it's a bit like eternal food stamps. Now, I don't have any eternal food stamps. I don't think they exist. Um, because truly then there would be such a thing as a free lunch. But imagine you get eternal food stamps, right? The government issues this food stamp card. Whenever you need food, you simply go to the grocery store, take the food from the shelves, flash your food stamp card, put it back in your pocket, and take your food home to meet your needs. That's a little bit more like what the redemption of Christ is like. It would beat 15% off, right? It would beat a cash coupon with an expiration date. It would beat Don Pablo's for $25 you can only use once. That's the picture of the redemption of Christ. Eternal redemption. No expiration dates. Complete redemption. Never loses its ability to forgive. The blood of Christ is sufficient to atone forever. You know what? And it doesn't matter the sins you've committed. It doesn't matter the sins you've committed. It doesn't matter how devastating you view that sin to be. Maybe you've defrauded your employer. Redemption of Christ still applies. Maybe you've committed adultery in your marriage. The redemption of Christ still applies. Maybe you've aborted a child in your womb. The redemption of Christ is sufficient for your forgiveness. Maybe you're living a lie of some type. The redemption of Christ is sufficient. The blood of Christ atones for all sorts of sins. It, it redeems fornicators. It redeems idolaters. It redeems the perversely effeminate people. It redeems homosexuals. The blood of Christ redeems thieves. The blood of Christ redeems covetous people and drunkards. Blood of Christ redeems revilers and swindlers. Every single one of those categories, Christ has redeemed. And I know that because 1 Corinthians 6 speaks about how such were some of you, Corinthians, who through the eternal redemption of the blood of Christ were redeemed. Well, I love the way that verses 13 and 14 give us the greatness of the sacrifice of Christ. He says, if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? There's a contrast there between the, the redemption of the Old Testament sacrifice and the redemption of Christ, which is eternal we see the blood and bulls of goats, indeed, in some way, verse 13, cleanse the flesh, right? They sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, but the blood of Christ somehow sinks deeper into it. The blood of Christ cleanses our consciences. It's a little bit like scouring on a pan. We recently, we, Yvonne made some potato soup, and it, um, well, let's just say she cooked it too long. 
And um, on the bottom was this hardened scum stuff. And, uh, you know, you pour the water. And I started to scrub it to clean it. And it didn't clean off very well. So we poured some. What's that stuff called? Scouring powder. We poured the scouring powder right there on the pot. Let it sit for a while. Somehow it sinks deep and down and into the inner recesses of the scum and muck. And then it can be taken away. And that's like what Christ does. It's deeper than the out, outer external flesh. It's deeper. We need to realize this perfect sacrifice that in Him is our redemption. And it, it, it purifies, as it says, our conscience. How much more, verse 14, will the, the blood of Christ cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? You see, we have, we have no reason, no longer reason to feel this guilt for our sins because it's been done and we can have a clear conscience before God it's a wonderful thing of Christianity we can sleep at night with a clear conscience knowing we're at peace with God through the perfect sacrifice of Christ it's not that we forget those things or, but, but we don't have to show remorse for our sins have been passed and dealt with we have no need to try to make sure that we secure our forgiveness through religious works Rather, we are free to serve the living God, as verse 14 says. And all this came about because Jesus came into the flesh. And apart from His appearing on earth, none of this would have been possible. And that's what you have to celebrate this Christmas season. I'm just going to ask you, will you rejoice in the eternal redemption that Christ has provided for those who believe? That's what Christmas is. It's what it's about. It's what we need to do. So my first point this morning. Jesus came in the flesh to obtain eternal redemption. Let's move to the second. Jesus came in the flesh to put away sin. Chapter 9, verse 26. Let me just read it there. Look. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once, at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. I, I trust you can see Christmas here. At the end of the verse, it says, He has been manifested to put away sin. That is, Jesus has appeared. He has shown forth. We have come and see him. He's come on the scene of human history for all of us to see. And his purpose was to put away sin through his death. Now, once again, we're in a difficult situation here regarding the context because we've jumped right into the middle of a verse that starts with otherwise. Now, that's, that's just single. There's a big contrast there. And uh, I think it compels us to move back in the context to catch the full thrust of this verse because it does climax here in many ways. And um, we could start in chapter 9, verse 15, but chapter 9, verse 22 summarizes verses 15 through 21. Verse 22 says, According to the law, one may almost say, All things are cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. That's the point of verses 15 through 21. When a new covenant came, verse 15, there needed to be a death. Because, as verse 17 says, A covenant's never enforced while the one who made it lives. And then verses 18 through 21 speaks about a first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. Therefore, we can even say that Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. That's the point of those verses. And then the writer continues here in verse 23. Therefore, 
for cleansing and purification. It was necessary for the copies of the things in the heaven to be cleansed with these. Right? It was necessary for the blood to be shed, for the copies of the heavenly tabernacle to be cleansed. But the heavenly things themselves, the implications here, needed to be cleansed with better sacrifices than these. And as Christ enters heaven as a forerunner for us, chapter 6, verse 20, He cleansed it lest we stain it with our own sin. Because Christ had to come and purify it so that we could come and be there as well. And verses 24 and 25 speak about the cleansing work of Christ. It says, For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Here we see that Christ entered heaven itself with the once for all sacrifice that cleanses the holy place forever. His sacrifice was unlike any of the sacrifices of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, which needed to be sacrificed again and again and again. Need to repeat it over and over and over, every day, every year, with no end in sight. But the sacrifice of Christ was different. Once for all sacrifice, which now has been completed. And verse 26 flushed itself out. Otherwise, if he would have entered the the normal place. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once, at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Christ had to sacrifice once and it was all complete. Because the one time he took sin, he put it away. He doesn't have to keep putting it away again and again and again and again. Not like a house filled with toddlers. It keeps putting things away. And they come and putting things away. And, and putting things away, right? What, what's the quote of Bon? I can't remember it. I didn't write it down. A, a house with kids. Go ahead. Yeah, that's what it's like. Mothers, you know what that's about. Cleaning a house while children are growing is like shoveling snow while it is snowing. That's not what Christ, Christ didn't have to keep putting it away and putting it away once. He appeared once and finished his work. He said, John 19, verse 30, upon the cross, very last thing, it is finished. After he said that, he bowed his head, gave up his spirit. It means the work that he came to earth to accomplish was completed. And what was his work? The work was to take away the sins of the world. Early in the ministry of Jesus, John the Baptist saw him coming to him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He could have easily have said, when the Lamb of God approached, He's been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. It's the same thing. And when did Jesus do this? He did this. Here it is. At the consummation of the ages. It's when the time was right. And when Christ Jesus was born in Bethlehem, it was the right time. It was the right time politically. There was a Pax Romana, a Roman peace that extended across the world that, that gave one language, a Greek language, gave good roads, travel access for the good news of Christ to be spread abroad. It was a perfect time politically for the Messiah to die and that message to boom, scatter throughout the world. The time was right spiritually. The law had tutored the Hebrew people long enough for them to understand they needed a Savior. It's the right time prophetically as all the prophecies converging there upon the Messiah. In the New English Bible, captures the sense of verse 26 really well. It says, He has appeared once 
and for all at the climax of history to abolish sin by the sacrifice of himself. The climax, the pinnacle, the perfect time, the consummation of the ages. This is what Paul said in Galatians 4. When the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem us who are under the law. And again, I hope you see that this is Christmas. I mean, verse 26 says Christmas written all over it. The writer of Hebrews is describing the time when Jesus came in the flesh. It occurred when Jesus was manifested. His days began in Bethlehem. His days ended on a cross outside the walls of Jerusalem. And by his sacrifice, he put away sin. The Greek word atheteo means to set aside, to annul the power, to render it useless, declare it invalid. He has buried it in the sea. I was talking this week with a friend of mine who's been plagued by some difficulties in his life. And uh, some past offenses and problems have just continued to come up in his mind and it has haunted him. And he knew he shouldn't dwell on those things, right? They're past and they're dealt with. They're dealt with at the cross. So what my friend is, he took a piece of paper and wrote down these things. And he took this piece of paper and folded it around a rock took a string, he told me it's biodegradable string, he took the string, wrapped it around the rock and after praying over this rock he took it and he heaved it as far as he could and splashed in the water nearby where he lived it says finished he took drastic actions to, to symbolically say these things are done I don't have to bring them to remembrance anymore I can throw them away from myself. They are there in the sea and they will no longer bring a charge against me as if only they take that soggy piece of paper out somehow and it comes to stand before me, which is obviously impossible to do. And he just did that in his mind to help him. Well, that's a great picture of what Christ has done in putting away sin. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us, he has taken our sin, hurled it, See, he actually hurled it, nailed it to the cross, as Colossians 2 says. Our sin was nailed to the cross. That's why Paul can declare in Romans 8.1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That's why Paul can say that in Christ all of our transgressions have been forgiven. And if you're a believer in Christ this morning, you never need to worry about your sin coming back to accuse you any longer because it's been put away. Let me just say, if you are haunted by past sin, maybe sin you committed before you are a Christian, maybe even after you are a Christian, you, you did some things that's just heinous in your sight. Maybe you're, maybe you're haunted by some sin. If there's, there's two reasons why you're haunted. First of all, maybe you're not a believer in Christ. And the Holy Spirit's being gracious to you and is convicting you of your own sin. If that's your case, I exhort you to look to Him. Look to Christ. He's the only one that can grant forgiveness and trust that He is sufficient for your sin to be forgiven. Well, maybe maybe if your sin is haunting you this morning, maybe you are a believer and you think your sin you committed in the past is so great, you just need to continually express sorrow for it. You just always feel like you need to show God how sorry you were for that sin that you committed. Now, there is a place for grief. There is a place for sorrow. There is a place for repentance. But listen, you've dealt with it for God. It's put away. 
Because in Christ Jesus, all your sins, if you're a believer in Christ, are wiped away. And to you, if sin is haunting you, I just tell you, believe the gospel. Believe that the sin you have has been put away from you. Not just the little ones have been put away. It's all of our sin. And we don't need to make it up by saying prayers. And we don't need to make it up by church attendance. Or by compensating with some good works, like giving to the church. Or being especially kind to your mother. As good as those things are. We need to believe the Word of God that Christ has put our sin away. And that's the case. You'll be liberated to serve God with a, a genuine heart and with love towards Him that can't help itself but to, to love and praise and worship and serve the God who's forgiven you. Well, Jesus came to the flesh to obtain eternal redemption, to put away sin. And my third point here is to sanctify us to sanctify us comes in chapter 10 verse 10 right there it is by this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ again we find ourselves deep in the context of Hebrews we need to step back a little bit let's catch a running start chapter 10 verse 1 for the law since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things can never by the same sacrifices which they offer, continually, year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is reminder of sins year by year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. These verses tell us that Christ did what the law could never do, weak as it was through the flesh. The sacrifices the priest offered were shadows that pointed to the reality. They weren't the reality themselves. As such, they can never make perfect those who draw near. Those who draw near with these sacrifices left not being made perfect, but left cleansed in some sense. Chapter 9, verse 13 says there is a, a cleansing of the flesh. But this cleansing was never final. You know, the sacrifices of the Old Testament were like this. I got one of these here this morning. New, brand fresh, so it's not, you know. You guys know what this is, right? What is this? It's a piece of soap. That's the sacrifices of the Old Testament. Praise the Lord for soap, right? How many of you used soap this morning? Good, good, good. You take it. You lather it up, you rub it all over your body, you rinse it off, and what happens? You're clean. And so you go forth from the shower, clean, squeaky clean, as I like to say. But what happens throughout the day? You get dirty again. You play some basketball, right guys? You do some work in the shop, you get dirty again. And your body begins to stink. And so what needs to take place tomorrow? Come back to your trusty soul. Yeah, come back and lather up. Rub it all over your body. Rinse it off. And then you're squeaky clean again, only to go and face another day. And what happens that day? You begin to stink after a while. So you need another shower. And again and again. And the, the cycle goes again and again and again and again and again. Here it is. Because soap can never make us perfectly clean forever. There's a cleansing, to be sure. But it never makes us clean forever. So that's the reality of the sacrifice of the Old Testament. They're like soap. Never make us perfectly clean. 
And the very fact that you shower tomorrow is a fact of the fact that um, soap can't perfectly cleanse you today. And that's exactly the argument of verse 2. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had a consciousness of sins. They wouldn't have had to go back. The very fact that they went back demonstrated the sa- that the um, sacrifices were only a, a temporary fix. And so also the sacrifice of the Old Testament can never make us perfect, need to be sacrificed again and again. In fact, verse 3 says that they're a reminder of sins year by year. <clears throat> and verse 4 says this, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Remember what I said in my last point? Christ put away sins. The sacrifices couldn't take away sins. They could just cleanse us and purify us for a little bit. But here's the good news. We celebrate this Christmas season. Christ has taken away our sins. He's like super-duper-duper soap that cleanses perfectly and permanently, right? Somehow, imagine if we had this perfect soap. I won't put this soap because it was this perfect soap, right? That, that you put on your skin and it, it just sinks deep into your skin and deep, sinks deep into your heart and cleanses and purifies you and takes away all filthiness. That's what Christ did. He took away our sins. Well, let's pick up verse 5 now that we see, see the context. We see the writer explaining how it was that Christ took away our sins. Therefore, when He said, comes into the world, He says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for Me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sins, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of Me to do Your will, O God. These words are taken from Psalm 40, and they have Christmas written all over them. Look at how verse 5 begins. Therefore, when He comes into the world, that's the incarnation, Christ coming into the world. These words describe Jesus descending from heaven, taking on flesh and blood, walking among us. And that's what we celebrate on Tuesday, Jesus coming into the world, coming in flesh to walk among us. And then the last phrase in verse 5 clarifies it. He says, but a body you have prepared for me makes the first phrase of verse 5 all the more clear. Christ came into the world, received the body, born of the Virgin Mary, real flesh and blood. During the days He walked on earth, nobody ever doubted that Jesus was really a man. It was only after that that the docetists started saying, well, it was only a shadow. No, when He came, He was flesh and blood. He took on a body. And again, we see this hinted in verse 7. Therefore I said, Behold, I have come to do Your will, O God. Now, apart from verse 5, it would be difficult to ascribe this to the Incarnation, but because of the the close proximity to verse 5, we say verse 7 is referring to, I've come into the world. That's what he's talking about. As we continue through these verses, verse 8 and following, we see the writer exposing Psalm 40, just like he quoted. He said, verse 8, After saying above, sacrifice and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sins, you have not desired nor taken pleasure in them which are offered according to the law. So there, he's just kind of taking all those things, taking the, the sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifice for sin, putting those together and saying, God, you've not taken pleasure in them, nor have you delighted yourself in them, even though you commanded those things according to the law. Then he said, verse 9, Behold, I've come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. So verse 8 is talking about the futility of the Old Testament sacrifice. Though God commanded them, to be offered for sins, fundamentally the sacrifices wasn't what gave the light to God. 
Andy read for us Psalm 51, verse 16. Oh God, you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased in, with burnt offering. The reason why God doesn't delight in these things is because ultimately they're useless in taking away sins. Because they can't, verse 4. But he commanded them, so there is a some set of a delight. It's a little bit like Christmas shopping with your small children. In the first place, you go shopping with a, one of your children who are small, and they have very little money. So they can't buy much. But they want to purchase things for the brothers and sisters. But the only thing that they can purchase oftentimes are maybe little things that might end up in the trash pretty quickly, like trinkets in the treasure chest or something. Because they can't afford anything of higher quality. Now, as a father, you delight in your heart of your child that wants to give to brother or sister, yet there's something that doesn't take delight because of the limitation of your child's purchasing power. Well, that's so it is with blood of bulls and goats. And these sacrifices are joined with a broken spirit, a contrite heart. God delights in the worshiper, even though there's a weakness of the sacrifice. God takes little pleasure in these things. But the sacrifice of Christ gives God great delight. And as Christ came, as it says, to do your will, verse 9, his sacrifice ended the need for animal sacrifices as he's established the way into the Holy of Holies. And here it says, verse 9, he takes away the first in order to establish the second. I think that means he takes away the first sacrifices in order to establish the second, pure, greater sacrifice. And now we come to my point this morning in verse 10. By this will... What's the will? To take away the first, to establish the second. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. When Jesus submitted himself to the plan of his heavenly Father, he came to earth, sacrificed himself for our sins. It wasn't an easy road for him in the Garden of Gethsemane. You remember when he struggled with that will, he said, My Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. And of course, God's will for him was he'd be crucified upon the cross. As he says in verse 10, it's through the sacrifice that we are sanctified, right? When he offered up his body of Jesus Christ once for all. And I say this is the reality of Christmas. It was the will of the Father to give his Son a body. So the Son would be crucified upon a cross. So that whoever believes in Him will not perish, but might be sanctified through the offering of His body and have eternal life. It's like John 3.16 molded together with Hebrews 10.10. That is what Christmas is. That's what Christmas means to us. Christ came to do the will of the Father so that we might be sanctified through Him. Let's just finish by looking at verses 11 through 14. Again, repeats the same point. Every priest stands daily, ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Still getting back to chapter 10, verse 4. But he, that is Christ, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Are you sanctified this morning? And if you are, there's great reason to rejoice this Christmas season. Let's pray and close our service.
Lord, I, I would pray that you would teach us this morning of why you came to flesh. We saw last week how you came to communicate to us. You came to taste death for us. You came to be merciful to us. This morning we see you. You've come to give us eternal redemption, to put away our sin and to sanctify us entirely. And I pray, Lord, we embrace that and realize the joy that gives us that we can go forth believing the gospel with great joy. How appropriate it was for the shepherds on that first Christmas morning. The angels, I think, behold, I bring you good news of great joy. And so, Lord, I would pray that we would go forth in this place with the great joy that we have from the good news that you have given us, that Christ has come, offered his body once for all. We don't have to look for another sacrifice, but we can reflect upon him. Oh, thanks be to God for his indescribable.